there is uh, we're entering into Palm Sunday here. Uh, now, of course, this Sunday is not Palm Sunday, uh, but it's, it's the events of the triumphal entry as Jesus comes in and what we call Palm Sunday. And, and as we look at Palm Sunday every year, which we usually do the, the week before Easter, um, I tr try to add context, but it's hard, and there's so much going on, and so it's neat that we can look at it just in its context, things that have been happening and, and things that will happen. And this is uh, one of the events that is written, one of the few events written in all four Gospels, actually. It's, it's a, it is a big event, and, and things have been happening as we've been going through John, is, uh, the, the teachings that have been going on, and, and Jesus healed uh, the man who was an invalid for 38 years, and Jesus just tells him, you know, pick up your mat and walk away, and he does. And, and there was a man born blind, and Jesus heals him just... Uh, uh, and, and that had never been done before. And the Pharisees and, and religious leaders are, are dumbfounded. And what are we going to do with this guy? And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. And a lot of people saw that. And, and uh, they, they can't have this, the religious leaders, because uh, everyone's going to believe in him. He starts raising people from the dead here, which, which he has done. And, and there's been the teaching. Uh, Jesus has claimed a deity before Abraham, I am which was clearly a way of saying, I am God, is, is what he said. And they, they understood that. Uh, there was also the teaching that comes uh, right around verse uh, 30, where he said, I and the Father are one, uh, which uh, he was telling them, look, your whole idea of God is wrong. The Father is God, and the Son is God. And so they couldn't make sense of this. You say, you're saying, Jesus, that you are God along with the Father, and, and we could add in the Holy Spirit. That teaching comes a little bit later, but it, they charge him with blasphemy. There's all these things going on, and they can't figure it out. They've picked up stones a few times to start throwing at Jesus, but he's always kind of ducked out of the way. And and then in chapter 11, there was this idea uh, in, in at verse uh, 56, I believe, where uh, they were wondering, is Jesus really going to show up at the Passover? It's, it's getting close to the Passover. Jesus certainly isn't going to show this year because they're, they're out to get him. You know, they've already convicted them in their minds. They want him arrested so they can put him on trial and kill him. So he's probably not going to show. Do you think he's going to show this year? He's just outside of Jerusalem right now. The Passover's coming, and they're wondering, is he going to show? Nah, I don't think so. There's too much danger ahead this year. But then he shows up. And that's where we pick up the story here in John chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. 
The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When he had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truths. And we ask that you will build us up in your truth as we look at this passage, that your voice may speak loudly in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, oftentimes will... Uh, refer to a historian named Josephus, and uh, we call him a historian, but actually at the time he was just writing things that were happening, and, and he was uh, keeping track of some history as well, uh, but Josephus was born in Jerusalem back in the year 37, so just a few years after Jesus had ascended, um, uh, Josephus was born, and his, his father was a priest, I believe, and so he writes of things that had happened in, for, to the Jewish people and were happening at the time. And he describes a Passover that was just before the Jewish War. In fact, Josephus wrote a lot about the Jewish War that it started in the year 66 and then ended with the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. But he writes of a Passover just before the Jewish War 
And in that, he mentions that in Jerusalem at the Passover, there were 2.7 million people to worship. Uh, 2.7, and that's not counting what he calls the defiled and the foreigners. There's actually more than that, he writes. Now, the number may be inflated, how he counted out 2.7 million people. We don't really know, but here's what he's saying. There is a lot of people. And he's making a pretty good guess when he guesses uh, over 2 million people. Uh, a lot of people would come to Jerusalem. And the, the Passover he writes about is, is you know, maybe 30, 40 years after this Passover where Jesus rides into town, but the numbers are about the same. Well over 2 million people there. And Jesus is kind of the talk of the town. They're wondering if he's going to show, and, and then he shows. And so we see when John writes in verse 12 that there is a large crowd. Uh, we might have to, in our mind, think of even a larger crowd than than what we're imagining. You know, I'm thinking my mind, oh, there's a few dozen people or maybe a hundred or thousands. Okay, I think hundreds of thousands maybe yeah, along this road here. There's a lot of people and and a large crowd is going out to to see Jesus. And, and the assumption here is that Jesus is coming in from Bethany and the pilgrims who are, have come to Jerusalem, they, they had come from all over Israel to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now they're in Jerusalem and they're going to go out. Jesus is coming up this road and, and we're going to see him. You know, some of the Galileans that had watched Jesus perform miracles up in Galilee, uh, the, the thousands maybe that Jesus had fed on the mountainside, uh, certainly those uh, who had seen Lazarus come back to life or had heard the story of it, they go out to meet him and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're waving these uh, palm leaves. And the palm leaf, by the way, has become somewhat of a national symbol. Uh, it was on their coins and, and things like that. And, and as they shout this Hosanna, this is famous. They know this. It's from Psalm 118. But at the end, they add that phrase, even the king of Israel. You notice that in verse 13. That's not part of Psalm 118. Uh, they add that uh, because they can tell something special is going on. Here's the king. Here's the Messiah. Here he is. He's coming into town. Uh, and he's coming in on this young donkey. We see that in verse 14. And, and John doesn't spend any time talking about how they got the donkey. He leaves that to the other gospel writers, and they write about that. He's staying focused on, on his story here and, and what's going on. But here's this donkey, and, and he rides in, and, and here's another prophecy being fulfilled. Uh, in verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt, and this is from Zechariah chapter 9, and, and he's coming in, and, and notice, uh, sitting on this donkey, which back in the Old Testament times was the ride of a king. Uh, you can see it, uh, King David and, and his sons, it was a donkey. But in the hundreds of years since the Old Testament and the New Testament, kings would ride in on war horses, but Jesus isn't coming in on a war horse partly because he's fulfilling prophecy, but the prophecy was written this way because he's not coming to make war with Rome. 
coming uh, for political, military reasons. And so when the Pharisees throw this charge at him later, oh, look, he's trying to overthrow Rome, and Jesus is clearly not doing that. He's coming gentle and humble on a donkey's coat. And, and John adds this note in verse 16, as he sometimes does. You know, this didn't really make a lot of sense to us at the time. Uh, we didn't understand these things at first, but then, after he was glorified, when we saw him come back from the dead and, and being lifted into heaven, then this made sense. But at the time, we were just kind of watching this, and it was amazing. And the, and the crowd, in verse 17, the crowd that had been with him, what he called Lazarus, they, they were there, and, and they continued to bear witness you just kind of almost imagine what's going on. They were saying, yeah, that's the guy. You know, we, were, we saw Lazarus. He was in the tomb four days. He was really dead. He was there four days. And then this Jesus right here, he called him out. He said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walked out. They continue to bear witness. And, and that's why all these people are going out to see him. And, and in verse 19, the Pharisees are looking at each other, dumbfounded and saying, Notice how they blame each other. They said to one another, See, you are gaining nothing. And they're kind of pointing fingers at each other, as we like to do a lot. You are gaining nothing. Look what's going on here. Uh, to, to the Pharisees, and kind of almost in their defense, there's not a lot you could defend with the Pharisees, but, but almost in their defense, they're seeing this uh, potential explosiveness. I mean, think about it. We have a couple million people in Jerusalem and, and a lot of them are all on the side of Jesus right now. And if Jesus wants to lead a revolt, he's got, you know, 2.7 million people thereabouts. This is going to be a pretty good revolt if he really wants to. If this is what this is all about, they're seeing, uh oh, this thing is going to explode. And in the back of their minds, and, and maybe they were saying this to each other, and you know what? He doesn't care for our teaching. If he takes over, we're gone. Because he, he doesn't like what we've been teaching at all. And Jesus just keeps increasing in popularity. And their stability is pretty fragile at this point. We're gaining nothing here, people. Look, the world has gone after him. All of our plots that we've been trying in, in reducing his popularity have gone. And look, the world is going after him. John mentions that then in verse 20 when he mentions the Greeks. Yeah, the whole world is going after Jesus now. And he mentions these uh, Greeks who were there to worship. Now, uh, when, when we look at these Greeks, they're not necessarily from Greece. They could be. Uh, but uh, a lot of times this would refer to uh, Gentiles uh, from any part of the Greek-speaking world or the Greek reading world, if you will. And, and obviously, they're, they're God-fearing, as some of them were. They, they wouldn't necessarily convert to Judaism, but there was a lot about Judaism that they admired, and they would celebrate certain fests or feasts and, and festivals uh, with them. Um, you could go to uh, Luke uh, chapter 7, and there's a a centurion, a Greek centurion, who built a synagogue for the Jewish people. Um, in Acts chapter 8 and 10, we see uh, the same idea. They, they liked Judaism. They didn't necessarily convert, but they would take part in the festivals. And, 
And now these, these Greeks, or Gentiles, if you will, uh, they come up the fair. They're watching everything going on, and they, they come up to Philip. Maybe they knew who he was. Maybe they lived near him. Uh, also, it is interesting, Philip is actually a Greek name, so maybe they just, oh, that guy might be safe. He's Jewish, but he had a Greek name, as Andrew was also a Greek name. Uh, so uh, maybe that was what it was, but they said, uh, Philip, we want to meet this man. we got to talk to him. And Philip goes to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip then go to Jesus. And Jesus, in verse 27, gives this answer. And when you look at the answer, it doesn't seem to really answer the request. They want to see, these Greeks want to see Jesus, and Jesus gives starts with this answer, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And at first glance, you're thinking, well, Jesus, what, what are you doing here? You're not honoring their request. And, and did the uh, Greeks actually get to meet Jesus and talk to him? We don't know. Uh, it wasn't important to John's uh, account here. And as we saw with the donkey, he doesn't spend time on things that take him off course. And so uh, maybe they did, but there's something going on. There's something going on when he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The approach of, of these Greek people uh, is a trigger maybe or a signal um, that the hour has come. He's been talking about this, that he was going to draw people from all over the world, that this was going to be more than just a Jewish thing. And now here are these Greeks who want to speak to him. And he says, this is it. The hour's come. Now Jesus knows that it was coming. But he said, the, the, the world is coming. And the hour has come. Every time Jesus talked about the hour coming earlier in, in the book of John, it was a future tense. The hour will come. The hour is near. But now he's saying, this is it. This is the hour. And then he talks about his death. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And notice how at the end of verse 23, and then uh, when you read that with verse 24, his death is subsumed, if I can use that word, subsumed under his glorification. He will be glorified. But it will be through his death. He's going to die to bring forth this rich harvest. And his glorification, as we see as we go through this, is tied to his refusal to serve his own glory, but to do what the Father pleases. And he's been very clear about this, uh, especially in John chapter 8. And we can see it here in verse 28 when we look at that. Father, glorify yourself. He speaks of this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless I die, it just nothing happens. But I'm going to die, and I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to bear much fruit. And then he turns uh, the tables on, uh, turns the attention to us a little bit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And, and he's talking to us here about this, this idolatrous 
focus we can have on ourselves. And when we do that, how, how it's basically a fundamental denial of the sovereignty of God. He says, give, give up yourself for the glory of God. God will glorify you, but give yourself up for the glory of God. And, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And now this, when he talks about hatred, this is always uh, somewhat of a, a difficult concept. He's, he's not talking of hatred on an absolute scale. Like, I have to do everything I can to make sure I hate life. So when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to drop a boat anchor on my foot and then hit my head on the door on the way out. And as I close my car door, I'm going to slam my you know, fingers in the car door just so I really hate life. Because then I'm going to be glorified someday. He's not talking on the scale. You really got to hate life every second of your life. But, but uh, as D.A. Carson puts it, uh, it's for the one who chooses not to pander to self-interest, but at the deepest level of his being, declines to make himself the focus of his interest and uh, perception, and thereby dying. It's, all, it's almost on the sliding scale, knowing that what I have in Christ is everything. What I have with the Father is everything. The rest is all junk. I don't care about it. I'll give it up in a heartbeat. If you want to take it from me, I don't like it anyhow. But God is everything. And that's what he's talking about here. And then Jesus said, if anyone serves me, he will follow me. And we see what Jesus is doing. And then there, where I am, my servant will be also. And, and these are powerful words when you consider where Jesus is going to go. And anyone who serves me, the Father will honor him. You know, in First uh, Peter uh, chapter 2, uh, Peter writes this, that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Die to your sin. Live for the glory of God. Paul speaks about it often, uh, dying to uh, yourself or dying with Christ. Uh, he speaks about it in Romans and Galatians and Colossians and 2 Timothy, uh, this, this idea of living completely for God. And, and Jesus is saying in, in verse 26, Any, if, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Just as Jesus' crucifixion is the path to his glorification, as he mentioned earlier, I will be glorified, but I'm going to die. So also the believer's death, if you will, is the path to his vindication. The Father will honor him. But it's not easy. And Jesus himself points this out. This isn't easy. In verse 27, now... My soul is troubled. But what shall I say? Am I going to say, Father, save me from this hour? No. This is the reason I'm here. This is the very reason I'm here. And this isn't a compromise. He's not saying, oh, okay, I guess I have to give up something so the Father can get some. Okay, we're, we're kind of compromising here, God. I don't really want to do this, but I'll, I'll, I'll do this. Okay, Father, I'll do this compromise. Um, not that at all. But this is the principle that has controlled his life. This is the time. The hour has come. Here it is. 
Father, glorify your name. Johann Bengel, who is a, uh, a good German Lutheran theologian from the late 1600s and early 1700s, and a brilliant uh, Greek theologian, uh, but he writes this, the horror of death and the ardor of his obedience were meeting together. He had a zeal to please his father, be obedient to his father. But here's the, here's the, the horror of death, and it's all coming together. Father, glorify your name, and this voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And this is one of three times, by the way, in Jesus' earthly ministry where this voice has spoken from heaven. Happened at his baptism, happened at the transfiguration, and it happens here. This is a big deal. This is the hour. And the crowd, they hear this voice, and some of them are thinking, well, that's weird thunder. It's a sunny day. Thundered? Where'd that come from? Others are thinking, no, that's, that's the angels speaking kind of get the sense that they didn't really hear the words. They don't really know what was spoken, but they got this sense something has been said by the angels here. And Jesus said, now this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Jesus knew this was coming. But look in verse 31, uh, the urgency. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of the world has been cast out. You know, you can go back to verse 27, now my soul is troubled. A couple times he said, this is the hour. It's happening right here, right now, now, now. And you might think, well, okay, now the, the ruler of the world is cast out. Well, what, is, what does that mean? I mean, we look around and we can see Satan is still very active in the world. That's pretty clear to all of us that, that uh, look around. What is he cast out of exactly? He's cast out of, if, if I can use this uh, illustration, of, of the courtroom, basically. Your accuser has been thrown out of the courtroom by Jesus dying. When Christ dies on the cross, he dies for our sin, and what he does is he takes away the one weapon of Satan that could cause our annihilation, our eternal uh, eternity in hell, fire. He takes that one weapon away, which is, as John Piper put it, the valid accusation of our unforgiven sin. Yeah, that will send you to the fire. Unforgiven sin will send you there, and that is completely valid. But Christ takes that weapon away by going to the cross and dying for our sin. And Satan is disarmed against the children of God. He wants to come accuse us, and Jesus said, you got nothing. Get away. Cast out. When I am lifted up, Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And John mentions that he, this is the, he's showing what kind of death he's going to die. But Jesus said it's happening now. 
the judgment of the world now, the destruction of Satan and what he has now, the, exalt, the, the exaltation of the Son of Man now, the drawing of men and women from uh, all nations now. And, you know, we think of this as end times stuff, and it is, but Jesus is basically saying the end times are starting now. Now, we still have the culmination and, and the, the consummation of all of this. There's things to be played out, and Jesus will come back. But he's saying it's all beginning now. Here it is. People are coming uh, without distinction, men, women, from all nations, tribes, tongues. And I'll be lifted up, and I'm going to draw all these people to myself. And this is somewhat ambiguous. We've seen that in, in the, the book of John. And John mentions that this is by what kind of death he's going to die. Now, there's a little bit more to it. The, the crowd, they pick up on this idea of the death. They, they know what he's saying there. But there's also, as we saw earlier in John, there's also this idea he's going to be raised up from death. And he's going to be raised up from the earth into heaven at his ascension. And the crowd doesn't know that yet, but they did pick up on what he's saying about how he's going to die. You're going to be lifted up on a cross. They, they, that they know right away. And in verse 34... They say, but wait a minute. We can read in Scripture, and their Scripture was the Old Testament, and very clear in Psalm and Isaiah and Ezekiel, and you can find it other places as well. It's very clear that the Messiah remains forever. It's an eternal kingdom, everlasting rule. So if you're going to be lifted up and die on a cross, well then, who is the Son? What's going on here, Jesus? What are you talking about? And Jesus answers them, The light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light. Lest the darkness overtake you. What Jesus is basically saying, and he has said it earlier, I am the light of the world. He's saying, here I am. I'm the Messiah. Come to me now and believe in me right now. Right here. Because I'm not going to be here very long, much longer. But if you stay with me, you're going to see some things happen. And you'll believe. And you'll become sons of light. And as Jesus says this, and, and John uh, writes it for us, you know, God gives it to us through John, there, there's a couple of audiences at play as, as we read these words. And, and the first audience is those people standing right in front of Jesus. As he tells them, I am the light of the world. I am the Messiah. Here I am. You have a very short time with me. Very short time. Because in a few days, yeah, they're going to put me on a cross. But I'm going to come back. They don't know that yet, but he's saying, believe in me right now. Now's your time, because it's, it's getting away from you. And then by extension, we're the other audience that's in mind, all of those who read the book of John. And it's this reminder to us that there is a finite, limited time in which we have to respond Up. Judgment for eternity has been determined. And that time is 
short time that we have on earth. Now is the time. Now is the time. This is the hour. Jesus said you have only a short time to respond to the light of the world. And you must. Because there's judgment coming. Jesus said, now is the time of judgment. Now is the time to come to the lights of the world. Back in uh, Luke chapter 9, uh, Jesus uh, said some of these things in a different way. Uh, in 9.23 of, of the book of Luke, he writes, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's a lot of the same ideas that he's talking about right here, denying ourselves daily, living to God completely, taking up our cross daily, killing that sin in our lives. And it makes us ask that question, what sin am I not killing? What part of my pride or my ego or my desires Am I not willing to kill to follow Christ? I gotta kill those. I gotta get rid of those. Daily. Take up that cross and follow God completely. And do it daily. Today. You know, a lot of people have this idea of Christianity or religion in general. You know what? That, that'll be a tomorrow thing. I've got a lot on my plate today, but tomorrow maybe I'll have some time. And I'll, and we've heard this phrase, and I'll get right with God. Tomorrow. None of us are promised tomorrow. Jesus is very clear. Today. Now is the time. Now is when we do this. Now ourselves, kill our sin, and follow God in his glory. Let him do the glorifying, and he will, as he glorified his own son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your truths. We ask that you help us see the sin in our lives, that we may hate our sin turn from our sin and follow you, Lord. That we may be willing to deny all that we are and all that we have, that we may live for your glory and that we may do it today and every day of our lives. The time is short, Lord. Give us this message to speak to those who don't realize how short time is and build us up in your truth that your son died for our sins and Satan has been disarmed. He has no valid accusation against your children because in him all of our sins are forgiven. We thank you for that, Heavenly Father, and we do pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.